Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hey, welcome back for a brand new episode of Identity Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamenta. If this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you and we hope that you come back for future episodes and more dope content. If you are a returning viewer or listener of the podcast, we welcome you back and we hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and inspiring. So before we get to the main event, as always, we have some announcements we wanna make. Uh, first and foremost, we have the Identity Talk Apparel Shop, where we are featuring some new designs, and we're touching on all the different educators in the spectrum. So not just our classroom teachers, we got some stuff for our librarians, we have some stuff for our STEAM educators, we have some stuff for just other educators who do this work uh, with our children. So if you're looking for some new swag for the upcoming summer, Make sure you check us out at the Teespring store at teesprings.com backslash stores backslash the hyphen identity hyphen talk hyphen apparel hyphen shop. And then finally, if you are looking for some professional development to add to your license, we have our courses featured in the Identity Talk School at Teachable. So if you'd like to get more information about any of our courses, whether it's our Shape the Teacher Identity 101 course, or our SPELL, which stands for the Self-Publishing Educators Learning Lab course, make sure you check us out at conley.com backslash identity talk for educators. And those are our announcements. Now let's get to this main event. As you all know, uh, the past week or so has been pretty difficult for Black folks all over the world, uh, we've just been, we've seen uh, two young people lose their lives in Dante Wright and uh, Micaiah Bryant. Um, and it's just been an emotional roller coaster. So uh, today is all about healing. It's all about getting ourselves right mentally, psychologically and physically in order to get back into doing the work that we need to do to disrupt all the isms, the racism, the sexism, and everything that's going on, not just within our school communities, but beyond that. So tonight's guest is somebody who is all about disrupting the status quo. Uh, she is a school anti-racism, diversity and inclusion executive coach. She's also a culturally responsive curriculum consultant. And 
we're not just bringing her on, but guess what? We got to bring on the ancestor as well. So uh, without further ado, I want to bring on the good sister, uh, Miss Charlotte Stevens and the ancestors. Thank you, Kwame. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here. Lovely to be here. Sorry. <laughs> yes. And I have to say, that is one of the dopest names I've ever seen. Probably the dopest name we've had on the show. Charlotte Stevens and the ancestor. I just love that. So can you just share with the audience, you know, why it's important for us to affirm our ancestors and why you add it to your name whenever you travel anywhere? Absolutely. Um, there's so much to be said there. So when we think about like our, our heritage and our legacy as, as African people or, you know, people who come from Africa, we're all about the community, right? I'm not relevant as Charlotte Stevens. I'm relevant because I'm Sheila Stevens and Steve Stevens' daughter, right? And mm. I am because they were. We stand on the shoulders of giants. White supremacy culture is individualistic culture, right? I got to get mine. It's all about me. Um, that's not who we are as African people. We are of the community. Communal. You know, we're communal and we and we're collaborative and we think about, you know, the long term effects of our decisions. And so I really wanted to get back into my ties as an African person and let go of this this white, you know, cultural identity or ways of being. That's not me. Right. So who we are as African people is we are because they were. So when I think about what my legacy here, my time here, I think about the ancestors. So that, so I include the ancestors for a lot of reasons. So one, our ancestors um, are not, are discounted, right? I'm, I live in the United States. Um, my ancestors built this country. They were kidnapped and tortured and stolen and built, created the economy and the global economy. And none of that is celebrated. None of that is really acknowledged. Um, it's kind of just glossed over, right? There's massive amounts of, of, um, of graves um, for my ancestors are unmarked, right? The auction blocks are unmarked. It's like they did all this work and they weren't here, right? It's like it's like they it's like they never really existed. We never really acknowledged them. So I refuse to continue that, right? The ancestors come with me. I am only here because of all that they went through. And I've had many moments in my life where I've been depressed, I've been suicidal, and I had to go back to that strength of what did my ancestors endure? What did they get through so that I could be in this position? and be able to speak my truths. They couldn't, they couldn't pursue their passions. They couldn't wear cute dresses. They couldn't, you know, they couldn't speak freely on, 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 on a podcast. So they're a motivating factor for me when I want to play small, when I don't want to write my book, Kwame, I'm writing my book, but the you know, <laughs> all the things I don't want to do, the ancestors are like, we didn't go through all of this for you to just live a comfortable life and not fight for us. So Come on. I'm, I'm real about that. And that is a motivating factor because I can't imagine what they had to endure for me to be in the position so that I can have all this opportunity. So absolutely, they roll with me. And I always wanna remind white folks like, yeah, reparations, that's real. Like the enslavement and all the, everything that you did to my ancestors, you need to be accountable for that. So just hearing my name, right, is enough for people to be like, huh, right, have people thinking. And that's the point. <laughs> that's Ooh. the point. Ashe, Ashe. Okay, sister. Come on now, we're only seven minutes in. <laughs> we're only seven minutes in now, come on. You got time to waste. The ancestors are like, look, life, life is no, short. No. Go, right? <laughs> no, I'm loving this energy. I am loving it. All right. Well, why don't we start from the beginning? Uh, first question I love to ask my guest is to just tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you into the field of education? So what brought me into the field of education, I have to go back to my parents. So first and foremost, they 
utilize education as the great equalizer, which is what it's supposed to be, but it's often not. So with my father, he grew up in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. He was a short man, like five foot three, dark skinned, um, growing up in Jim Crow South. So he has all kinds of things against going against him, but my dad had nothing to mess with. So he ended up going to the Air Force, went to Stanford University, became one of the first public defenders, um, first, first time the white folks allowed an African-American to become a public defender in Santa Clara County. And he dedicated his life to making sure that people of color, specifically black people and brown people had access to a lawyer, right? So not being railroaded in the injustice system. So he utilizes education to disrupt cycles of poverty and to, um, Fight for fight against racism. My mom did the same thing. So she she was out of a. They're both out of abusive alcoholic families. Um, so she was out of a poor abusive alcoholic family in East Oakland. She went to UC Berkeley, um, got two degrees, um, master in social work and I think sociology, and she became a powerhouse in social services. So she did juvenile justice work, um, anti aging work, um, Cal works, etc. So both of my parents utilize education to disrupt cycles of poverty and to fight for social justice. So that's where I come from. So it's in, that, in that sense, like I was already predestined. So then what happened is um, the schools failed me, right? So the schools did not create a safe, welcoming environment. They did not give me teachers who looked at me from a, a strength mindset. They did not um, believe in me. They did not make sure that their teachers were anti-racist or none of that. So. I barely graduated high school, even though I was I was smart, I was articulate, all of that, but I couldn't prove it. I couldn't make it translate into grades. And it wasn't until I went on to college that everything changed for me. And I was able to kind of see that this is how the system's designed. This is how white supremacy designed education. And if I hadn't gone to college, I would have internalized all of that and just thought that the failures were mine instead of recognizing that the failures belong to the educational system. And so too many of our students are not going to learn that. They're gonna internalize, they're gonna think that it's just me. And what I see in our community is that the damage is done in school, right? We're trying to undo the damage after the fact, but the damage is done in school where black folks, if they graduate, um, are indoctrinated with the white supremacist curriculum, don't have any sense of their black identity and don't feel good about who they are. So regardless of what your GPA might be, it doesn't matter if you don't feel that you can go out there and start your own business or start your own podcast or whatever the thing might be. Right. So. My experience comes from being failed by these schools. And as I was sitting in class, I was just like, I could do this better. And then when I got to college and really started to understand what was going on, um, I wanna bring that to the masses because it's, it's, it's educational malpractice, what's going on in our schools right now, but we're just used to it. It's black and brown kids failing and specifically, specifically black kids failing or indigenous kids failing. So who cares? That's the way it's always been, right? The same way we throw up our shoulders when we're dying in the streets, black people die, black people fail, and we throw up our shoulders instead of being outraged, instead of saying this is unacceptable and not okay. So- Man, oof, you, you said a whole word right there. And when you think about imposter syndrome- Sorry, um, Sorry my little girl came in for a second, keep going. Uh, no problem. So when we think about imposter syndrome, for us, it manifests itself in the form of internalized racism, as you mentioned. But internalized racism is the main ingredient for anti-blackness. Right. Which is very much prevalent in our school communities. Mm -hmm. So I know off air, when we uh, first met each other and we were talking, you mentioned the fact that you were in a predominantly white setting for most of your K-12 experience. Um I had that experience during my high school years, so I definitely understand, you know, how that feels to try to wear your blackness on your sleeve and you have these combating forces telling you otherwise, right? So I want to ask you this question because I know that 
you attended the Mecca in Howard University, HU. <laughs> um, sorry, Hampton. I know there's right. a beef there. Look, but Hampton's cool. I, I got a um, Lois Benjamin. Dr. Lois Benjamin works at Hampton. She's amazing. She's my mother's best friend. So we're cool with Hampton, but we know who the real HU is. Just, just going to say. All right. Yeah. I've had a few Hampton folks on here. So, like, there's always a competition <laughs> about that. But I want to ask you, because you attended HBCU, and I'm pretty sure that that was a turning point for you in terms of building your self-efficacy, not just as a black person, but as a black woman, mm-hmm. you know, in American society. So what I want to know is how did your experience at the Mecca and how university impact not only your life, but shaped your character as an educator overall? Howard was amazing in so many respects because we don't, because black excellence is, is not celebrated um, in our country. So Howard was nothing but black excellence. And just to be surrounded by all of this intellectual proudness, all this just genius was amazing. And it was com- it was confirming. Um, the other thing about Howard that was like side note, but whatever was a great experience is that I got to be invisible at Howard, right? So when I was at my predominantly white campus, oh, I stood out like a sore thumb, right? You could see if I'm in class, not in class, whatever I'm doing, you could see it. And it was really great to kind of blend in and for black excellence to be the norm. So that whole experience was phenomenal. Um, as well as all of the classes being taught from, I didn't have to raise my hand and ask, you know, what's the black perspective on this? Or like, what are people, um, hold on, let me just step out of the camera. What are, um, where where are my people in this conversation? Too often I have to, I had to do that, you know, in every other college, like where are we in this conversation? And when I was at Howard, it was just given to me. So to have my experience centered was totally new because we get so used to white supremacy. We get so used to whiteness being centered that that just feels normal. And so to be in a situation where blackness was centered, I had never had that experience. I had never been, um, the average person looks like me. So, so that, shifted what I thought could be possible in the classroom and gave me a different perspective on how things could be taught and perceived and presented, that it doesn't always have to be in a way that's centering whiteness. Um, and also it normalized black excellence, right? So when, when my school, when I was one of the few black kids and most of us were being failed by the system, I didn't see that. And the expectation and the and the normal way of thinking about black people was not you know, as excellent, but how was that Howard? I mean, we, it, was, it was a creme de creme, right? So, I mean, I saw Black excellence all day, every day. So it normalized all of that. And that's part of where my outrage comes from. When I see what's going on in our schools, is I saw, you know, Howard was predominantly a Black college, 90, 90, 90, 90 to 95% or whatever. The, the numbers are high, right? Mostly all Black people, all of them brilliant. So what the heck is going on in our high schools where that's not the case, so Howard presented me with like a, a 180 from my experiences in, in school and showed me that a lot of what I believe to be the way it the way it is, is manufactured, is constructed. And so it was great to be able to pan out and see the bigger picture. And then even the history of being, going to a historically black college, you know, that speaks to the way we've been academically disenfranchised, right? Like we sure. could not get into how, um, Harvard and, and all these other schools. I call those historically white colleges because because that's what they were, right? Like even with historical black college, anybody can come, but historical white colleges, that wasn't the case. We could not come. That's why we had to start our own school. So 
that too, I always go back to that. The fact that I had, you know, that these schools were created because we, again, regardless of whether or not we have the academic ability, we were not allowed. So there's all these ways that, you know, white affirmative action has existed where they were able to get access to education. And even though we might be more qualified, we didn't get access, right? So all of that fueled me to be like, what the hell is going on in our high schools? And how many of our black high school high schoolers are never gonna have the experience I had at Howard or had at college because they're so turned off by their experiences in school, right? The, the kid, the, those teachers have done the damage where they don't feel like they could go be successful in college. So it was a lot. In addition to like the, um, the war, one of the wars started 9-11. Um, I was there for, during 9-11. So when we went to war with um, Afghanistan, I was there for that and just seeing like, what we're doing globally, right? Who we are globally as well. So it was a lot, Kwame, it was deep. <laughs> I can't even imagine. And as someone who didn't have the privilege of going to an HBCU, I always tell people, if I could do it again, my undergrad and even my graduate experience, I feel like I would be a bison. Yay! <laughs> I, just, I just feel like I, I have Howard in me. Yeah. Either Howard or Hampton. I always tell people this. I yeah. can't say why. It's just a, a gut feeling, you know? I feel you. Yeah. So you you go through all those years in Howard. You know, you're in D.C. Mm -hmm. And then you eventually make your way back to the Bay. Mm -hmm. And you start to engage in D.I. work. No. I was teaching. Oh, first. no. Actually, what happened before that? So I got into teaching. I got I started substitute teaching, started working with youth. I, actually, I, I did get a DI. A DI. Well, that's funny that you said that. Okay. Yeah, I, I started working with Camp Everytown, and they work on isms with high school kids. So I was volunteering with them, right? So it would be a five-day intense camp with high school kids. We're breaking down barriers. And in that experience, um, I saw that our schools are doing the same things that they did when I was in school, right? So I'm talking to a lot of the kids who are, um, the kids who are falling through the cracks, the kids that, 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 that the teachers are excited that they're on a five-day field trip because we don't want to deal with you anyway, right? So that was that, was that same kid. So I can relate to those right. kids. And so um, just talking to them and seeing their experiences and seeing how school has not changed, that the same issues that I was facing, the same ways that I felt unheard, the same ways that I felt, you know, I never saw myself in the curriculum, or I just felt like I was demonized as the bad kid. Same things were happening um, in, in, in school. And so I was really perplexed by that because I was green and, and I was um, hopeful. And I thought that, you know, if society just knew how to do things better, they would. And I didn't understand yet that that was the system that 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 it was by design that certain kids are going to be looked at a certain way like black and brown kids are going to be demonized um, and other kids are not so that brought me back to education i did a lot of substitute teaching i eventually got my credential my master's degree in education and became a social science teacher and so i was teaching history and again the curriculum is so whitewashed so white centering i always um included a multicultural perspective, made sure that the students in my class learned their history. So I, I thought it was um, egregious that so many of my friends didn't hear anything about their history until they went on to college. Like I got a friend who was Filipino, she did, or, yeah, Filipina, and she didn't learn anything about the Philippines, right? And a, a student who was Tongan, and I remember when I brought in um, her culture into the classroom, she she was like in tearing because she had never seen her culture, you know, presented on on the screen and and, and presented as as you know to the class. So. 
it was super whitewash. Um, we never had real conversations about, you know, putting the quote unquote achievement gap, which I call the educational debt, who I got from somebody else. I, I, I don't, I forgot her name, but educational debt opportunity uh, gap. We never put that in context. We just throw it up there and we say, oh, the black and brown kids can't get it together and the Asian and white kids are doing okay, but no historical context, no white supremacy, you know, history of why that is and never any training about implicit bias, about white supremacist thinking and culture and the way that that plays out in our classroom. So I, I was getting frustrated with that. And then I started to um, guest teach all over the Bay. So from Sacramento to San Jose, to Santa Cruz, to Oakland, to Richmond, like I was everywhere. And as a substitute teacher and as a black woman, nobody can see you. No one pays attention to you. So I was, <laughs> so I did a lot of investigating. I, I talked to the students, I talked to staff, I talked to parents, I would get into like whatever files I could get into. Um, not to like snoop snoop, but like I, I did some snooping. You know, I wanted to see like, are, are any of the schools meeting the needs of our, of our black and brown students or even our black and brown staff? Because we always say we want staff of color, but it is, it is toxic for a lot of staff of color to be working at these schools. So I saw the rich white schools, I saw the broke down schools, I, I, I probably went to over a hundred schools and that allowed me to see that it's up to me in order to present the training that I wanted to see. That what I was seeing like, when I saw other people doing the, the the work, it was still watered down. It was still centering whiteness. We never, they never mentioned white supremacy. They would never mention racism. They wanted it to be more like, you know, we're all equally responsible and, and, and you know, not being prejudiced, not being racist. And it's like, no, racism comes from white supremacy. And we need to just be brave enough to say that because the work doesn't change. If we just, oh, we all just need to be nice to each other and don't judge and treat people like we wanna be treated. That's the same thing we already tell our students and we think we've done the work. You know, we need to address white supremacy and white people and talk about it. And if we're not gonna be real about it, nothing changes. So that's that was the force that pushed me into this um, arena was like, I think it's up to me because I kept looking for it. I kept trying not to do it, but I couldn't find anything that was on the level that I needed it to be for changes to really happen. Because the, the gist of it is, is that the teaching force is white. It's 83% white. The superintendents are like 90%, you know, white males. And so white people bring in white supremacist culture in whatever they do. That's just what it is. We don't like to say it, but like, I'm, I'm gonna be the person to say the things that people don't wanna say because I'm here about the kids. I'm here about the ancestors and the ancestors don't play. So they bring in white supremacist culture into our schools and white supremacist culture is inherently toxic to black and brown people. That's the nature of white supremacy. It was designed to be toxic to us. So when we have white teachers perpetuating white supremacy in our schools, you're going to have black and brown failure, specifically black failure, because it's by design. You're going to have indigenous failure because it's by design. So they keep thinking that the problem is us, but the problem is them. Right. And you mentioned so much there. Like when you talk about indigenous people, we have to talk about settler colonialism, mm -hmm. right? When you talk about Asian people, we have to talk about the modern minority myth, mm -hmm. which also perpetuates anti-blackness because you're pretty much saying- Man, mm -hmm. the Asian folks, man, they're perfect. Yeah. They get straight A's in math. They do all these things. They're docile. They're law-abiding. Why can't y'all be like them? Right. Get it's it together. 50, right, right, which is so far from the truth. And then, of course, with our Latinx uh, brothers and sisters, you know, we can go on and on about just um, just language barriers and, and other issues as well. So and at the end of the day, the common denominator is white supremacist culture. We we, we know Absolutely. that. Even though the colonial situations are different within each of the groups that you find within the BIPOC acronym, mm -hmm. we're all fighting the same uh, beast, um, essentially. Absolutely. 
and the beast will the beast has like several heads so like one head you know is going to be attacking the asians and the other head's going to be attacking you know the african american but it's like when we kill the, when we kill the heart of the beast all the heads die right which is why like when, when it comes to phrases like end asian american pacific islander hate like i'm all for like that but also understand that we can end asian american pacific islander hate and my black butt is still at risk right and so in order for us to all be good we need to end white supremacy. It's very simple, right? We need to understand that even white folks are being affected by white supremacy. It's not good for any of us, right? So absolutely. And then one thing I want to say about the settler um, mentality is just specifically with the Latinx community is that, um, and I just got this from somebody else, but the way that we call um, people who are learning English, English language learners, again, mm -hmm. mindset rather than multicultural or multi multilingual, right? Or like, emergent bilinguals. There's so many ways that you could phrase it, yeah. but nobody calls me a Spanish language learner, right? Like, again, that's the deficit mindset instead of these people know more than one language, whereas the average white teacher knows one, right? So why can't we celebrate the fact that these kids are multilingual instead of calling them English language learners, right? There's all these ways that we, and that's, again, that's that white supremacist culture that you can't even hear that you're perpetuating white uh, white supremacy, or you can't even hear that you're talking down to these kids because you're so used to seeing opportunity gap or at risk or e English language learners or all these or, or minority, all these phrases that chip away at my self-esteem. So why do I want to come to your class when all you're going to do is chip away at me and it doesn't feel, I don't feel safe here, right? Maslow's hierarchy, uh, hierarchy of needs. I need to feel like I belong. I need to feel safe. Yes. But that's not how our black kids feel in school, right? We have teachers who are getting caught taking themselves off the mic, right? Who think that their, their audio's off, who are talking crap about black kids, right? And we're hearing all of that because of, of what's going on with um, COVID. So if I'm a black kid and I know you don't like me and I know that nothing in this curriculum is gonna celebrate me and I look at these walls and it feels like a hostile space, why do I want to come to your class? I don't. Right. And that's why when I was in school, I wasn't there because you, I don't feel the love here. I'm gonna be somewhere where I'm loved and it's not here. I'll be quiet. Yeah, that's, that's real. No, <laughs> yeah. no, no, please. No, that, that's real. And speaking about the Latinx community, what you're talking about is translanguaging. Mm. That's the term, translanguaging. Yeah, I appreciate so you. When you. Yes. And there's a book out called um, Uncommunidad. Oh. And the authors are uh, Dr. Carla Espana mm -hmm. and Dr. Luz Herrera. And I think they're both based in New York. Nice. I'm trying to get them on the podcast. Hopefully, they'll be able to come on and talk about how we need to center the voices of bilingual Latinx students because that's another important topic Absolutely. that we do need to touch on. But even with us as Black people, we translanguage as well. Mm -hmm. And I believe that Dr. Jamila Lee Scott talks about this in Black Appetite White Food mm. as well as uh, Dr. April Baker-Bell mm -hmm. who talks about uh, black linguistic justice. You know, when we hear about Ebonics, when we hear about mm -hmm. our other um, dialects and, and ways of communicating with each other, those should be celebrated and affirmed within our classroom because that's how we navigate the world. That's how we navigate our neighborhoods. It takes a certain level of intelligence to do that. Absolutely. To code switch and to go back and forth and we're multicultural and, and too often like our black, our, our white colleagues will exploit that, right? They want us to go be multilingual with the black families or with the black students or with, you know what I mean? They, they want it. They want to, they want to utilize that skill set, but you don't want to, you don't want to honor it. You don't want to acknowledge it. You don't want to pay for it. Right? Like you, you can't do it. 
but but you don't you don't recognize it as a skill that I bring to the table because I can get down with white folks and get down with black folks. And the truth is, if you're of color living in like a colonial land, like you're multicultural because you t- you tend to know your culture and white culture, right? Whereas like these yeah. old, like white teachers. You don't have that, right? As long as our schools are saturated with these white teachers who are not hanging out with 91% other white people, they don't bring that diversity, that diverse way of, of interacting the world to the table. They have their white way of being and then everything in society sanctions that. There's nothing in society encourages them to learn another way of being, right? But like with us, if we didn't know how to get down with the black folks, they let us know, right? You're, you're whitewashed or you don't fit in or whatever. And that was me. Um, coming from a white school, I did have to learn how to yeah. interact with me. Like it was a culture shock going to Howard. Like only time I saw that many black folks was at a family reunion or at church, right? I had never seen that many black folks <laughs> right at a time. So even for me, it was like, holy crap, like look at all these black folks. So I had to adjust and learn how to interact with my community because I didn't know my community. I didn't know us, right? I didn't know us. Wow. So, absolutely. Wow. So you have all these experiences going on and eventually you come, you cross paths with the, and I call him legendary. I'm so glad you uh, know him, right? He's amazing. Yeah. Lee Monwa. So if anybody knows about the color of fear, which is a classic classic that just deals with race relations. Um, it's, it's about maybe 30 years old, about 30 years old at this point. Thing, is it? Yeah, I think because it, it came out, that old. Came out like early nineties, right? Yeah, it came out like I was like 14, 15. Yep, it was. Yeah, bad. it's yep. about. It's still really good. Like when you look at the fashion, you're like, holy crap, this is definitely the nineties. But everything they're saying is so relevant. Like it, it could be today. Right, and if you don't know uh, Lee Monwa, you need to look him up. He is, he is a pioneer when it comes to what we call anti-racist work. And of course, at that time, we weren't using that term. Right. But he's been in this DEI space for a very long time. And you were able to do some work with them through the stir-fry seminars, correct? Yeah, stir-fry seminars. Right. So, so, yeah, tell me about the experience with him and how he was able to influence you and your growth as an educator, because I know he was a huge mentor to you. Yeah, he's really important to me, like even more than, you know, he might know because my mother, like I said, she was a powerhouse in social services. So I, Color of Fear was in my house, right? So I'm 14, 15 years old, mom's playing Color of Fear. And so I saw that as a kid, I really tried to get, bring it into my school, but my school wasn't trying to embrace any of these issues. So I, I recognized we had a racism problem. They didn't want to deal with it, but that I had never seen things so clearly articulated. And even at the time I was watching it, I didn't fully understand everything, but I've, I've probably watched Color of Fear, I wanna say like 20 times. I've, I've really have seen it a lot. Um, and it, it, it was such, it was a huge, it made a huge impact on me as a young person because there was nobody, there was no one to go to in my white school that could really understand my experiences. I didn't have the names for it. And we know that being able to name things takes their power away. Like people can have a pain, they go to the doctor, they get a name for it, the pain goes away because they now understand it, right? So if I had been able to understand white privilege, you know, white supremacy, uh, a stereotype threat, microaggression, that would have alleviated a lot of my pain. And it wasn't until I watched Color of Fear that I was like, oh, okay, like this is not just my experience, this is a universal experience, and this is what's happening to me. So huge impact on my life for such a long time. And then it wasn't until, you know, cause that, I was like 14, 15. And then it wasn't until um, about 38 that I, a friend was like, yo, you should stir fry seminars right there in Berkeley. I'm in San, I was in like the San Jose area. 
why don't you go? And so then I trained with Lee Mumois, um twice. I did a three-day training with him, and I think I did a five to seven-day training with him. Um, we watched all of these, um, a number of other documentaries as well, not just um, Color of Fear. And um, it was profound. He gave me a lot of really great ways of engaging people in this conversation who don't want to engage in the conversation, right? When people mm-hmm. just want to like dismiss it and be like, oh, that's not relevant. Like, what is a question that you can ask that will have them re-engage? And then also sometimes when people are, um, when they don't want to hear that the topic, white folks specifically, they'll make it all about them, right? And then now, now it's all focused on me. So instead of focusing on whatever Kwame just said, I'm the white person who's wounded, all the attention on me, and, and he taught us techniques of how to pivot, right? The, the attention should be on you, black man, you not on me, right? And so how do we pivot that that doesn't alienate this person, right? This person's the one that needs to listen. How do we get them back engaged in the conversation and then also make sure that we're focused back on you and not centering whiteness? So he was really great about being um, about mindfulness and he, and about noticing like the little involuntary muscles, right? In people's faces. And like, so as you're talking to somebody and you notice something going on in their eyes, just like a twitch. Right. Like I, I, I noticed when I said this, that, that your eye twitched. What was that mm. about? Or I noticed that when I when I said this, you pull back. Let's talk about that. Right. There's all these ways that we gloss over communication that's happening right in front of us. And he was all about being really mindful and thoughtful and slowing down and being present and noticing all of those things. And not to say that like I'm a master at these things by any means. Um, he's been doing it for a while, but he definitely gave me some key um skills to help navigate this conversation. So I, and just wow. in general, just being in his presence was amazing and seeing how he did what he did because he has, he has two properties. He has like the right next to each other. And one is like where he lives and the other one is where he does his seminars. And so that was incredible too. Like thinking like, I could just, I could do something like this, right? I don't have to rent out a center. I could own two properties and just have it right here. He has people spend the night, um, at his properties. Like when you do his seminars, you can, you can stay there. Right. So that level of intimacy, I love. So I learned a lot and just having him see greatness in me, even though like, you know, like God's already told me I'm great, but it was nice to have my mentor also see in me, you know, the impact that he's made in my life and what I'm doing. So he's on my website. I have a testimonial from the great Lee Moonwah. I feel very impressed. Wow. Out. That that's huge. And I'm that's glad you know huge. Him. So nice that you know him, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's he's somebody who's really deep in this work, and yeah. a lot of people, a lot more people should know him. Right. But I know, right? Right. And you were mentioning about just for white folks this right to comfort, and that is a characteristic of white supremacist culture. Right. Yeah. So so people, if you haven't read the document on dismantling racism. Uh, with uh, Kenneth Jones and I forgot the other author's name, but basically you have the 15 characteristics. There's actually more, but they actually highlight 15. Mm-hmm. And when you watch The Color of Fear, even though mm-hmm. it's 30 years old, the way they were able to engage with one another in conversation and have that dialogue where at times it became very testy and okay. hostile they push through the discomfort. Right. That's what I remember about Color of Fear. And when you think about our schools now in 2021, there's still some school communities where once the fragility tears start coming down, white folks' eyes, they want to shut down conversation. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to get us nowhere. We have to fight through the discomfort. We have to sit in it. 
because that's where the real growth is going to happen, as, as you already know. Absolutely. And it's uncomfortable for all of us. Right. When I'm, yeah. when I'm conducting these trainings and I'm decentering white comfort and I'm like, no, we're not doing that today. And I got to sit in that space. I'm not used to that. Right. I'm not. That's not comfortable for me either. Like I, I speak out a lot and like I can't stop speaking out because I'm compelled and the ancestors are like on my butt. Like they're just like, girl, you're going to speak. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm not uncomfortable. Right. I'm uncomfortable speaking. out, And every time I'm disrupting white supremacy, I am swimming upstream. And even though I know I'm doing God's work, I'm doing the ancestors work. I'm doing the work I'm supposed to do it still feels like I'm in the wrong. It still feels like I'm being bad. And I have to, I have to reshape that because what our society expects is to center white comfort, is to make white people feel comfortable at, at my own expense, right? At my own expense, I'm supposed to sacrifice my comfort for white comfort. And that's the way that I've been taught. So um, we can't afford to do that. And that's why I continue to disrupt spaces that that center white comfort. And I, and I get pushback, you know, I was on a, um, a webinar two weeks ago. I was on two different webinars two weeks ago. And it was the week that, um, what is the boy's name? Adam Toledo got shot. Adam Toledo. Yeah. I think it was that week. Um, and we were still waiting to see what was going to happen with the George Floyd trial. So just things, it, it was hot. It was a hot week. Things are intense. Oh, um, and then uh, Der Derek was the same week that Derek. So it was Derek, it was Adam, and it was waiting for the George Floyd trial. So I was just not in a good space because why would I be? And um, I was on two different seminars where they're trying to, it's supposed to be anti-racist educators. And again, they're, they're, they're centering whiteness. They're talking around things. They're not talking about white supremacy. They're trying to still do this whole, like we all need to you know, be less racist. And it's like, no, that's not the case. Um, and so I was, I was going off, you know, in the chat and they tried to like, be like, you know, one of the gay white men was like, I'm a gay white man and look at all the things I'm doing. So I'm not the people that you're talking about. We're always white exceptionalism. It's not me. And I'm just like, if it wasn't you, you wouldn't be coming at me with, I'm a gay white man. Right. Like you, right? Like the fact that you're trying to exclude yourself in this conversation means that you're exactly the first time you'd be talking to. So they, they were upset. Um, I did not back down. I didn't care. I was just going hard in the chat and just kind of re redirecting everything. Because my thing is this, you have people on this, this webinar right now who think that they're getting a training, who are going to walk away and thinking that they've got what they needed in order to create a just society. And you are doing a great disservice because they don't, they don't have what they need to, 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 to do that. And you're still centering whiteness. And I'm not, I'm not about that. Like if you, you should at least like, you should have put some parameters on this webinar so I couldn't get in, but I'm here now. And, and it's just like anything that happens on my watch, it is what it is, right? I'm, I'm just gonna, yeah. I'm gonna say what I'm here to, I'm here to say. So at the end of it all, um, so I didn't back down from the, from the, the people. They were upset about it. I didn't care, but I had somebody <laughs> email. They were. Me <laughs> I had somebody email me later, a, a white dude, and he was like, "Look, normally I'm distracted when things are going off in the chat, but everything you said, I needed to hear, and I appreciate your passion. I appreciate what you said, um, because some of the questions I were getting were like, you know, well, what are you supposed to do about this, Charlotte? And I'm just like, that is for white folks to figure out, right? I'm not mm -hmm. here to figure out your stuff. And so he was like, I'm not trying to ask you what to do. I'm not trying to, you know, have you come teach us. I, I know that as a white man, we need to figure this out. And so he, message landed, right? Like he was in the audience and it landed. He, he got exactly what I wanted him to get from everything I was saying in the chat. And so I'm just tired of that. And I feel like a lot of us, um, I understand that that's, where it's comfortable. And there's times when I default on comfort too, when I reflect back and I'm like, wow, I, I really could have took and taken a stand. And instead mm -hmm. I decided to be comfortable. Um, but it's just not acceptable. It's not acceptable when I do it. It's not acceptable when anybody else does it either. It's not acceptable. Yeah. Let's stay on that for a second because 
when I look back at the Derek Chauvin verdict, Micaiah Bryant, Dante Wright, Adam Toledo, just everything that's happened over the past few weeks, right? What what white people need to understand is whenever we speak up, whenever we amplify and bring these issues up, we put our mental health at risk because we're reliving trauma. Absolutely. We we are reliving trauma every time we open our mouths. So we're taking a risk with our mental health. Right. And that's a part that people have to understand, which is why, even though, yes, we do have to speak up and we do have to agitate, we do have to do all those things. Sometimes we default to comfort because of how traumatic it is. Think about that. Yeah. Just think about, yeah, think about our greatest revolutionaries. Mm -hmm. Let's take Fannie Lou Hamer, okay? We're sick and tired. We're sick and tired. Come on now. You are, you see, this is why I love you. You see where I'm going with this. Why do you think she said that? Because guess what? Racial fatigue, battle fatigue is real. Absolutely. Especially when it comes with us. Mm-hmm. We 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 know all about battle fatigue, too much about it, because as a revolutionary, as an activist, and I use this basketball analogy because that's how it feels, right? It's like you're on your star, of your team. Mm-hmm. You go up by thirty points. It's the fourth quarter. Your coach sits you down. The bench comes in. They give up the lead. You got to go back in the game. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Just when you think you the game is out of reach. You can breathe. <laughs> yeah. you, you, like, you, don't even, you don't even get a chance to get a breather. Mm-hmm. The minute you sit down, you got to get your behind back up. Yep. And, and that is how I saw that transition from the Derek Chauvin verdict to Micaiah Bryant. It was like, right. you shot you shot right. You can't shot the buzzer beater, right? Can't even get a drink. Can't even like, woo! Come yeah, on, take crazy. We've been holding our breath for a year, right? Come on, and can't even just be like, yes, we find. And, and not to mention, what the fuck did we win? Justice? You know what I mean? Like, you murder somebody, you should go to jail. That's how right. it should be. We didn't win nothing, right? This is just, this is just us getting what we're supposed to get, and and can't even like the same day, what hours before, right? Baby girl being shot and killed, like just, it's never ending. Right, and, and the mental illness part, the mental health part, all of it is 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 very real. I think I think a lot of our community is depressed. A lot of our community is dealing with mental health issues. I frequently, yeah. so I I live with bipolar disorder, and I am frequently um, suicidal because of dealing because no matter how much money I make and how cute my dresses are, my earrings, and all of that, I, I can't escape white supremacy. Right, I go shopping, there's white supremacy. I'm driving in my car, there's white supremacy. I go on a plane in my first class, flying to wherever, there's white supremacy. Wow. So it's just like there is no escape from that. There's no safety for me. Right, I stay home because I feel like that's the safest place. But Brianna was shot in her home. Like uh, Amadou Diablo was shot in his home. Like all, all kinds of people. It's like they're so in that. Fred Hampton yeah. too. Well, so so many. Um, the baby girl was playing video games, babysitting her her nephew. Um, anyway, uh, my point being is that this work feels hopeless 
a lot of the time. I'm not going to stop because like I, like I, like I said, like the ancestors are pushing me and I'm just going to play the part that God has me to play. I don't know if this, any of this will yield to our schools, you know, being less oppressive or, or more freedom. I hope so, but I don't know. I'm just, I'm just playing my part. I'm doing what God tells me to do. I'm going to post all the things, you know, the universe tells me to post and hope for the best, but the work feels hopeless. And, and, and it feels hopeless because of white folks and how, how, how much they want to cry, how much they don't want to make any movement, how they don't want to make any change. Like just this, the lack of, or the amount of apathy that seems to constantly be prevalent, no matter how many, you know, we had this whole George Floyd thing um, that happened last year with all everybody having a Black Lives Matter thing in their front lawn all of a sudden. And, I, and, I, and a lot of us knew it was some straight up BS because white folks are trendy. And as long as it's socially acceptable, y'all will do it. But, but the real work is doing it when it's not socially acceptable, right? Like, like, like you said, it, it takes it, it takes a toll on your mental health, physical health. I know that when I speak up, that that what happened or what has happened historically to people like me, like I know that that I'm going to be targeted. And yet, the way I feel about it is like Audrey Lord said is like when I when I speak, I'm afraid, but when I don't speak, I'm still afraid, right? Like it doesn't matter. And so I might as well just speak. So um, white folks need to need to get that that like you know beyond your discomfort, we have black folks out here who don't even want to live and. That has been a motivating factor for me in the sense that like I made a decision of, of, you know, if if I'm at the point where like I don't know if I want to be in this life anyway, let's just do all the things we're afraid of. Like, F it. Right. Like, who cares? Like, because because at, at the end of the day, like I'm not even sure I want to be here. So who cares? So that's that's that was part of the motivating factor for me starting my business. Um, speaking up the way I've spoken up. I muzzled myself for years where I was like, oh, I'm not gonna be able to get a job if I really just say what needs to be said. But since speaking up, the money has like the, the money's ridiculous. And um the people who have who support what I'm saying is also like I thought I get all this backlash and I've gotten a ton of support. So I really feel that my voice is necessary. And at the same time, what you're saying is absolutely true. I mean, you saw it today when you sent me a message on LinkedIn, like my little away message is like, look, like this this work is redundant and exhausting, yep. and I'll get back to you on Monday. I can't do it. And and the more that like I'm blowing up the more like the public has access and wants access and is constantly asking me questions or wants free advice. And, and I ha I'm having to really establish those boundaries of how and where I will do this work. Because as I started my business to protect my mental health. So the days when I just can't, I don't have to, right? Like there's no one, no white man breathing down my neck telling me to go out there and perform and not understanding that I'm black exhausted, right? Like I've got black racial battle, facial fatigue, all of it. So um, I'm really just trying to be mindful about how can I, construct this in a way that feeds me and so that I can do my best work, right? And I'm not, you know, out there yelling at everybody, though at sometimes I think it's appropriate <laughs> to yell at people. I'm not gonna lie. Right. Sure. I can yell that, you know what I mean? Because like we're dying. And people need to understand that the gravity of us dying, like if your children were dying, you would yell, you would lose some of your grace, you know, trying to protect your kids. And so I feel like I don't mind being an angry black woman because expecting me not to be angry is dehumanizing. And I know that people want to just dismiss me or they want to be like, oh, we well, have the angry black woman and they'll dismiss you. But the way I feel about it is they'll dismiss me anyway. People who don't want to listen to me ain't going to listen to me. They'll find an excuse. You know, they might be like, oh, you're too cute. They'll, you know what I mean? They'll, they'll make up something just to not listen. Like, I don't need, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm scared of being angry. I'm fucking mad. And I'm sorry to edit that out, but I'm, I'm pissed. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I'm ready to, to do all kinds of things and I'm trying not to do those things. But if, they, but if, but if we don't get it together, that's what it is because you put people in a corner and you put them in a position when they got nothing to lose, then we go into war. You know what I mean? And like, I would yeah. love, like, I, I would love for us to be peaceful and all this kumbaya, let's work it out. But like the reality is, and another thing that we don't want to hear, but I'm going to say it because that's what I'm here to do is 
There will come a point where black folks don't want to talk to white folks no more. We done. We don't it's want already, to do it in years. I mean, it's already starting. I mean, really, we're losing patience. It's already I mean, starting. And you can see that by just, you know, you're, you're, uh, the way that you are out there, the way I'm out here, like we're, we're, we're tired, we're frustrated. We've been saying the same things. I mean, you said color fear 30 years ago, letter to Birmingham jail, what, 70 years ago, 60, I mean, it's just like, we've been saying the same things forever, ever, ever. And when the white folks were talk, talking to, to Britain, right, when they, the American folks, whatever, were talking to Britain, they were talking and then eventually they went to war. And they were seen as patriots and as heroes and all these other things for fighting for their freedom. We're often not seen the same way, but we're doing the same thing. We're making, we're holding America accountable. You said all men are created equal. I don't see that. You said equal protection under the law. I don't see that. You said access to, to education for everybody. I don't see that. And I'm tired of having discussions with y'all, right? Like we're, we're getting to the point where like, my life is at risk anyway. Let's, let's just go to war. And like, again, I don't want to say that, but I'm a history teacher. I'm a child of history. That's how it goes. That's how it goes. People are going to revolt, right? And so you keep killing our babies in the streets. People are going to revolt. So white folks need to understand that, like, it's not going to get any more comfortable for you, right? Like, it's like, you. this is as, as comfortable as it gets is me yelling at you, right? It's going to be a lot more uncomfortable should the violence actually, chickens come home to roost. So white folks need to get it together because I'm one of the, 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 like the calmer ones, right? But there's a lot of people out there who are pissed and who are ready to just take what they want. So again, I know that's a lot, but if I was white saying the same thing, it wouldn't be. It's a lot because I'm black and because people are intimidated and because they're scared and they think that black folks are going to do to white folks what they did to us. And that's, again, like the white pathology of the zero sum thinking or white folks think that we're going to come for them the way that, we, that we, they came for us. It's like we're not going to enslave you and rape your children and destroy your families and take your land and do all the things that you do to us. But we do want justice. You know, we want mm. our reparations, trillions of dollars that we generated. All these white families with wealth, Donald Trump and everybody else. That's our money. Right. And you want to talk about meritocracy. Nobody worked harder than us. We worked around the clock seven days a week. We have nothing to show for it because white greed took it. Right. All of that needs to be rectified. It needs to be rectified. This is not black culture. Yeah. It's black consequence of living on white supremacy. And we're not going to just sit around and be walked over and, and be taken for granted. Like, that's, not, that's not what's going to happen. And I'm going to make sure that's not what's gonna, <laughs> you already know I'm going to be training people. Right. So like white folks get it together before it gets uglier because we're already dying in the streets. Guess whose blood's gonna be in the streets next? Yeah, that's that's just real. I'm not making threats. Government, police, everybody. I'm I'm saying as a as a, a child of history, that's how it goes. That's what the heck it is. Yeah, I mean, and you mentioned the letter to Birmingham, mm -hmm. so we got to quote MLK, right? He did say, "A riot is the language of the unheard." Right. This is this is what it is right here. Right. You're not so being heard, so guess I love what? That. It's a you're language seeing, mm -hmm. Yeah, you're seeing what's going on. So people want to complain about the looting that happens. Well, gee, why does looting happen? I'm not saying that, like, listen, I mean, I'm not saying that people should just go ahead and, you know, break windows and, you know, listen, do all Columbus that stuff. Looted. These white folks have been looting all over the globe, right? Yeah. Then looted Africa, then looted, then looted Australia. Then, don't talk to me about looting. Don't. Yeah, don't loot. like, Hawaii, stop it. And it's gotta, just, what you were saying too about the riot is, is the language of the unheard. That's the same thing we see in our classrooms with some of this disruptive behavior. Ooh, our children resist the white supremacist indoctrination and there's no room for them to resist. So if you're teaching this racist lesson and this kid doesn't want to participate in it, how can they do that in a respectful manner? And if there is no way to do it respectfully, then they're going to do it in a way that you might find disrespectful. But just because they're making you 
uncomfortable is not the same thing as disrespect and resistance, not the same thing as defiance, but in a white supremacist culture with a settler mentality where you think I'm supposed to follow the line and do whatever the white person tells me to do, then when I'm not doing that, then you want to kick me out of the classroom and deprive me of my education. That's a problem. Yeah. All I'm saying is we need to contextualize the behaviors. That's it. Yes. Let's contextualize the behaviors. Let's understand why it's happening as opposed to jumping into these preconceived notions and assumptions about it, right? But all the stuff we're talking about leads to what is needed right now, and that's healing. So I want to yeah. give you a chance to talk about healing racism in schools. Um, you know, your company, which I know you're very passionate about, you do some great work with that. So I want you to talk about the mission of it, as well as the services that you're providing currently uh, through healing racism in schools. I appreciate that. Um, first of all, when people hear healing, <laughs> they always think like, oh, we're going to hold hands. We're going to sing Kumbaya, right? It's just going to be all peaceful. And that's not what healing is like, right? If you have an infection or some type of tumor or whatever, you got to go into that nasty thing and you got to dig it out and, and look at the pus and, and deal with the nasty smell and the oozing stuff and the crustiness, right? All, you got you to you manage all of that. And it's not pretty. And so that's why my business is called Healing Racism in Schools, because healing is not going to be pretty. And we have mm -hmm. to understand that, that, you know, just like within the color of fear, like you talked about moving through the discomfort, that's what white folks need to do. Like, we're, it's going to be when you work with me, there's it's going to be uncomfortable. But that's where the change happens. So uh, um, when it comes to the, the what I offer, so I so I've recently been working with an um, uh, elementary school in San Francisco, and they were coming to the end of our six months, even though we're about to renew. Um, and we've had some difficult discussions, but it's been very effective in that since the school has reopened, it was a white female principal and a black um, vice principal. And they were talking about how much their teachers have gone from policing the kids and being all about apologies and procedures and more about what do these kids need? How can I make them feel like they belong? How can I make them feel included? And it was a shift from you know embracing you know white supremacist culture to creating a sense of belonging for it's primarily a Latinx school, you know, and, and, and our black kids as well. And then also having them notice their deficit mindset. Like how, how are you looking at these kids? Like one of the exercises we just did is what are the strengths of these different communities? What are the strengths that your students bring to the table to shift their thinking from a deficit mindset to the strengths that they, so, so even like just surviving white supremacy and navigating white supremacy, that takes intelligence. That takes skills. Like I, I, when I interact with white folks, you have to notice those little muscles, right? So you could tell me one thing like, oh yeah, I love black people. They're great. But I got, I have to see what you're not saying all up in your face to recognize am I in danger right now? Right? So there's all kinds of intelligence that these different communities bring to our classroom that our, that our teachers are tradition not to, conditioned not to see and ways that they're perpetuating white supremacy that they can't see because they think that they're just being a good teacher. You're rewarded a lot of times for perpetuating white supremacy, right? If I'm on you about your uniform and put your hands behind your, your back when you walk through the, the hallways and all this way that we police kids, you're rewarded for that. But it's not, it, you're being an agent of, 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 of oppression. So. What do I offer? I offer 90 days to becoming an anti-racist school. Um, that is coaching that I do with the school leadership team. And I'm doing that right now over the summer to prepare everybody. So at the end of the 90 days, you're gonna start off with the first four weeks of the anti-racist mindset. I'm also writing a book called The Anti-Racist Mindset. And that's all about grounding yourself in the 
rituals and the habits that are going to sustain you. Because if, you, if you're not grounded, forget it, you will be the, the shore of, of white supremacy will take you out. So you really have to make sure that work is there because everyone's everyone's jump into action but if you're not grounded you're not going to be sustained and so from there we move into um creating your anti-racist action plan for the school year so we're going to find you support we're going to look at your data we're going to set goals um we're going to set up your your anti-racist plan and that's comprehensive pa uh, programs for your parents programs for your staff um programs for your students and then throughout the year right it's not like you go to one diversity training and you're done we are doing this like every couple weeks you know for a couple hours a week and just and just seeing like how things are going having dialogue as things come up addressing things as they come up etc so creating that action plan and then implementing that plan so at the night in the 90 days um They'll have an online workbook. I, I do coaching with them. They'll have a four hour VIP day and a recording of that day. And you'll have the anti-racist mindset and you'll have your action plan. So that's one thing I offer. And then the other thing I offer is the full on year consulting. So like, let's say that we just did the 90 days and you're like, okay, we did this plan. And Charlotte, I want you to be the one that, that does most of the, um, the consulting. That might be what that looks like. It could be that that I do some of it and I, I farm out the rest or other people do the rest. Or it could be that I don't. I, most of it goes to someone else depending on what the needs are. They need someone Spanish speaking or somebody specialized in different areas that I don't cover. Then we go about that. So like, let's say that we do the whole full year. Um, it all depends on what the school needs, but primarily I go into identity. Um, so looking at the identities of our of our staff, um, and then we move into curriculum. So decentering whiteness in our curriculum, and then policies and procedures, because that is where a lot of our our white supremacy lies is in our policy mm -hmm. and procedures and the ways that we are policing our kids and like dress codes that are, for example, you showing up with your with your locks and me being like, well, you can't access learning today, Kwame, because you have, you know, dreadlocks or me showing up with my natural hair. Like I can't access learning today. I can't walk the stage, you know, when I graduate because I have natural hair. So I need to go get me a hair weave, right? That's a policy that has nothing to do with education, but is keeping our kids from accessing education is further, you know, disenfranchising them. So, so we go through those three areas. And then also it's pretty dynamic because things will always come up. And then I also, depending on what the school needs, so again, programs for parents, programs for students, et cetera. And um, yeah, it's, it, and it's virtual. So because it's virtual, I can do it all over. Um, and I have contracts right now with San Ramon uh, Unified, San Francisco Unified, contract pending in Oregon, contracts pending in Texas. And I'm also being, <laughs> schools in like Canada, the UK, I mean, because white supremacy is everywhere, um, I'm being contacted internationally um, as well. So. If you're interested in getting more information, I have my brand new website, Kwame, um, charlastevensconsulting.com. Um, you can look at my information there. Also, you can hit me up at healingracisminschools with an S at gmail.com to find out more information. And I also have my podcast, Healing Racism in Schools. I have my free Facebook group, The Anti-Racist Educator, Fighting White Supremacy in Schools. And then I have a couple of resources that I will send to you. So one is for the anti-racist white educator, five steps towards anti-racism. And the other one is a toolkit that has a bunch of resources for parents. And um, so black and brown, uh, the black and brown community parents, and then anybody looking for resources to serve the black and brown community, that toolkit has that as well. So I will send all of that to you so you have access to it. There you go. <laughs> Ooh, the anti-racist mindset. And I know you and I, we've already been talking about different projects. So I'm, I'm excited to see how this thing evolves. That's dope right here. Thank you. All right. And thanks for your inspiration because I appreciate everything that you're doing as well, Kwame. You're awesome. Nah, you, nah you're awesome. I'm trying to be like you. <laughs> All right. But let, let's talk about the lightning round right now. We, we're about to approach the hour. 
So we want to get to know a little bit more about Sharla and, of course, our ancestors. We can't forget about the ancestors. So my first question is, what do you and the ancestors do to exercise consistent self-care? Wow. Um, well, one of the things that I'm doing in my business is I work three weeks and then I take a week vacation, right? Because it's my business and I do what I want to do. So, um, I did I that, that in the month of March and I was, I was, before I took that week of vacation, I was just like, I was demotivated. Cause the thing Kwame, I mean, I know that like people aren't getting it, but I also feel like I just say the same things every day. Like, I just, I'm just saying the same things every day. Right. And like, I'm bored listening to myself say the same things, even though I know it's still like, I still need to say it because it, the, right. the truth doesn't happen. But, but I definitely feel like, you know, I'm in like a echo chamber with myself kind of. Um, so I was really feeling like this is redundant. I was feeling like kind of just demotivated. I didn't want to write my book and I just wasn't into it until I took that week off and I took the week off and I didn't engage in, in like LinkedIn. I didn't engage in nothing. I got a uh, beachfront rental in Aptos and went out to the balcony and just looked at the waves and spent time with my friends. And by the time that week was over, I was so ready to go. I was like excited about getting back into my business, excited about writing my book. And what I was able to reflect on is that in all my other jobs and careers, I was never able to do that, right? I was never able to work three weeks, take a week off, get refreshed, go back for three weeks, take a week off, right? So um, just really being mindful about not recreating the plantation, right? I got off the plantation, I escaped to the North, right? I'm trying to build a better life and not, and not get back into enslavement. And that includes noticing when I'm just being busy, right? Because when we, when I had a job before I had to look busy, right? And so now yeah. that I have my own business, it's about spending, you know, two to four hours on a very important work and not doing the busy work. Like I'm gonna knock out two or three things today and then we're gonna go take care of ourselves. So I have to recognize when I'm obsessing. I have to recognize when like I'm in a manic phase, like when I'm just like, cause I'll, sometimes when I'm like posting like crazy on LinkedIn, I think that I'm caught up in like a manic phase and there's a part of me that wants to believe that this this is gonna be the post that ends everything, right? If I, as soon as I hit sins, right? Like white supremacy is gonna end, right? Like the, the heavens are gonna open up and I have to be like, no girl. <laughs> that's actually not what's going to happen. So, and, and when I recognize I'm kind of in that mindset, that's when I like, we need to, we need to go pull away. So, um, I do a lot of meditation. I do my affirmations. I visualize, I do nature walks. I hang out with, you know, my children. I hang out with animals. I watch Tony Baker animal voiceovers. I don't know if you know that on YouTube, but it's hilarious. He's a black man too, supporting black business. I buy cute dresses. Um, but I'm really mindful of sustaining myself in this work. And putting boundaries. So that's the other thing I do is uh, boundaries. So like when people are, are hitting me up, they always want like free advice. I'm like, you can, no. here's my advice, right? Like you can, if you would like to pay me some money, cool. Otherwise I'm not um, indebted to you, right? So just recognizing that like, it's just like with teaching. The work is always there. There's always gonna be people asking things of me. I have to be the one to decide what am I gonna respond to? What am I gonna engage with and what matters? And um meditating, praying, getting back to the alignment with the ancestors and with God recenters me, right? Like reorients, reorientates me about what, where is my focus? What am I doing? Which is why this month I've been really kind of, I've been laying low more this month because I'm, I'm about my book. The ancestor said like, look, April 30th, that's it. We're not playing with you. Right. So like that's, Ooh. that's five days. Right. So like, that's where I really just try to be mindful of what do the ancestors, what are they asking of me? And not getting caught up in the external because a lot of people are asking things of me, but you ain't 
my barometer, right? You're not, you're not my, my North star. So getting back in touch with, you know, what am I here to do? Because when I listen to the ancestors, everything works out, right? It is butter. But, um, you know, they don't always, they, they often tell you things that you don't really want to do. Right. So, so yeah. Um, but you know I, what? I the ancestors know better than any of us, because guess what? They know how it feels to do unpaid labor. Amen. They know better than anybody. And this is why we do this work is because Great. of the ancestors. This is I mean, why. On that, on that same note, when I think about anything I could fear, like, oh, my, my, where are my kids? Did they get kidnapped? That happened all the time to my ancestors. Am I about to be sexually assaulted? That happened all the time to my ancestors. Am I being exploited for Come my on. work? All the time to my ancestors, right? So Come anything on. I fear, I, they already went through it. And that's why they carry me. So that I can't be soft, right? Like, what, like I was trying to talk to the ancestors the other day. Like, I'm tired. You know, like, I don't, I, I don't want to write this book. I'm tired. They're like, oh, you tired? Oh, oh, you think you tired, right? It's just like, there's nothing I can say to them. That they're not going to come at me like, girl, please. You know, you better get back on my computer and get to work. So I love that. Like, I, I love being from such powerful, strong, amazing people who endured so much because it just reminds me of how strong I am. It's similar to your wife can relate to this. You can't. But uh, when I have my first baby, right, like when I'm pushing this, this child out, I had no idea what my body was capable of. I had no idea how much pain yeah. I could have. I had no idea until I was forced to. There was no I couldn't escape. And then through that process, I was like, "Oh, I'm 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 so much like better than I thought I was." So that's the same feeling I get when I tap into the ancestors. Is that like I have this 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 wellspring of strength that is beyond me. It's beyond me. And when I tap into them, I'm able to do things that are beyond me. Right? I'm, I'm a conduit. I'm just I'm allowing them to speak through me. So I, I really I really feel that. Like this is not my greatness. This is our greatness. Right. And like they weren't in a position where they could they could maybe allow things to speak through them or they would have been killed for it. But I am. Right. And it's only because of them that I am. So this is not just my life. This is not just my voice. It's not just my opportunity. And I think of that same thing, even with um, we talked about self-care. When I'm taking a bubble bath, I bring the ancestors with me because there's a, there's a chance that they may have never gotten a bubble bath. Right. That scene from 12 years of slave where um, Lupita is just like, I just wanted to use some soap and not stink. Right, like what a gift it is that after when, after when I smell, I can go take care of that. What a gift it is I can wear this beautiful dress. When I went to my beachfront property, I brought the ancestors with me. So my ancestors never seen the ocean, right? So like, part of my self care, like as I'm caring for myself, I'm able to care back to them, right? And that's that. That's the whole thing we did with like pouring out the liquor for the dead homies, right? Libations, like giving back to to those that were before us. So the, one of the ways I serve them is through my self-care, right? It's fighting the good fight, but then it's also like, yo, ancestors, want to, let's go on a vacation. You ever been to first class? Let's go on first class, right? Like, let's go do all the things. So, um, yeah, I, when, and that helps me not get caught up in that um, that white mentality of, of grind culture, because grind culture is about making money for white folks, right? It's about, it's about putting money in the, the pockets of, of, of capitalists, and like, they ground the Native Americans into dust, they ground us into dust. I'm not about ground grind culture, right? I'm about taking naps, right? I'm about, I'm about, <laughs> about there you go. taking a break, right? Because you're not going to wear me out. I, I, I mean, it's a marathon. And you know, this Kwame, it's, it's a marathon. I'm gonna be doing this work, you know, 40 years from now, I'll still be doing this work. So if I got to take a nap or take a break in order for me to keep doing this work and bring that same fire, then so be it. But I'm not. And also, we need to model this for other people, especially because we have our own business and because we can, whereas so many of our, our, our people are caught up working, you know, for white folks who don't care, who are, who are 
perfectly fine grinding you into the dust because you're expendable, right? So all of that. Yeah, that's a lot though. That's a lot that we have to carry. All right. Um, what is your biggest pet peeve? <laughs> um, I mean, it's white supremacy. I don't know what I did. I'm I'm obsessed. <laughs> I'm obsessed. And and it makes sense because um, what was it? Yeah. Um, Hari Kandabula, hope I said his name right, but he said that. Telling me that I'm obsessed with racism is like telling a, a fish that it's obsessed with like wanting to, to breathe, right? Like, or, or, or like just telling, you know, like this is, this is my lifeline. So, and it, and it permeates everything. It just does. So when I hear, when I, one of the things I hate is terminology that is, um, supports white supremacy. I, and I hate, especially when like we use it, cause I'm just like, stop using that. Like my minority achievement gap, you know, all the terms I've already said, I, I hate those terms at risk, um, subgroups, just all these terms that make me feel like I, I don't matter because of the color of their skin, because that makes me feel like if you send it to a child, if I just had the right color of skin, this wouldn't happen to me. It's the color, it's the color of your racism. It's not the color of my skin. My skin is magnificent. Your skin is magnificent, right? Like we beautiful. Um, it's not, I'm not the first, like I said with my dad, he's not the first black person to No, it's the first time white racist allowed a black person to. So the way that I really, my pet peeve is centering white comfort is my, my pet peeve is yeah. Catering to white comfort because it's at our expense. Every yeah. time you cater to white comfort, it's at our expense. Like every time you cater to white comfort, a black person dies, you know, like that's the reality. So it, it, oh no, I know my pet peeve is um is weakness is people who are not willing to be brave and be bold and engage mm -hmm. in these 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 discussions. Like everybody's fragile, you know. Like um this discussion that we're having is a bold conversation, and the chances that there'll be backlash are a hundred percent. So I get tired of like being this this black woman who's pretty vulnerable in this country, but being one of the bravest people I know, right? So it's like all these other folks that got resources, got protection, right? Like you call the police, the police shows up and doesn't kill you, right? Like you, you have all these things working for you, but you can't speak truth to power. But here I am, little old me, right? Like I've, I've, I put myself in this position. I anointed myself. I put the crown on me, right? I decided that I'm Charlotte Stevens and the ancestors and you better listen. And I didn't ask for anybody's permission for that, right? And as a black woman, ain't nobody trying to give me any type of like allowances, but here I am, right? And so if I could do it, why aren't other folks who have more power, more privilege doing it as well? All these white men on the, and these white women, it's like you're, you're, you have much less at stake. You know, you might lose a couple of friends. I might lose my life. There's a difference here, right? Like my life is at risk, but you're scared about, oh, Becky might not call me over for the bake sale later. Like, so I, I get really tired of people not having conviction, not having a backbone, not have living a life worth dying for. Like for me, it's like, if, if I feel like if someone takes me out and like my life is over, I lived a life I am proud of. And if I die, I die for something I believe in, but I'm not a coward. I'm not gonna be on my deathbed, him and Han about the life I wish I had lived, the things I wish I had said, I said them. I said all the, if I die today, I'm good because there's there's nothing, you know what I mean? Outside of, I want my, I want to write my book so it lives forever. But outside of that, I feel my soul is good. And I feel good about what I've done with the ancestors, all of that. So I just see a lot of people living their lives as though they're not gonna die at the end. And you are, so you might wanna make peace with that. I see a lot of white folks living their lives like they think white privilege is just gonna like go with them to the afterlife. It's not. Um, I see a lot of people living their lives as though they have forever to do things. You don't. 
I mean, I started getting health problems a couple of years ago and that was the fire under my butt to like, let's go. I don't want to die like Les Brown said with all my gifts, you know, mad at me because I never wrote the book because I never started mm. the business. I, I played mm. small. I'm not into playing small. So, and then with teachers, it's like, so many of them are scared to lose their job if they speak up. And I'm like, there's a teacher shortage. There's a, there's a, there's so many freaking opportunities, not to mention your job sucks. Like, let's be real. Your job sucks and you can do the same thing and start your own business, right? Like I'm still teaching on my terms, right? I'm still teaching the way I want to teach and I'm getting paid the money that I say I'm going to get paid, right? So like, I see so many teachers who are scared to speak up and disrupt things because they're scared to get fired. And I'm like, why are you scared? Why are you scared to lose this crappy job? And you can get another job. I've been fired before, so what? You know what I mean? Like, and in my last two jobs, I got fired. That was a motivating factor for me to start my own business. And guess what? I'm unfireable now. Right? Like, can't oh, fire wow. me now. So, listen. Yeah. Where's the collection plate? You giving all this pro bono game right now? We need to get a collection plate because shoot, this stuff that you're talking about, most folks they ain't, they ain't saying this for free. That's that's all I'm saying. So this is I, a blessing right here. Well, what it's I've been doing funny about that is I've been putting it on LinkedIn. I was like, look, here's my Venmo. Because I've, I've been I've been very unapologetic about that too. We do all give all this away for free, right? And I know that like yeah. this is gold. This is gold. People could take what I've made, but I said and make millions off of it. So yeah, you do you do need to pay me, right? So um I hear you on that. And I I got I trust that God's got a plan, the ancestors got a plan. All my reparations are coming and real talk, they're there already, they, they've been coming. So, and I know it's just going to be even more and more and more, but, but the, the thing is, is that at the end of the day, Kwame, and I know you can relate to this is like, I want us to all be good, right? It's not enough for me right. to have the cute earrings and the cute dress and for me to be able to take care of my mental health when I reach out to my community and they can't go with me to the beachfront rental because they're caught up right. in the grind, right? And so, and this is something that again, back going, coming back to our African culture, right? Is about the community. Is that it's not it's not satisfying for me to be here by myself, right? I'm not. Mm -hmm. That's not. Yay that you know that that I got here, but I want us all to get here, and that's why I do the work that I do in schools because, like I said, that's where the damage is done. Where we have people graduating from these schools and they don't believe they can start their own business. They believe they always got to work for some racist because they don't have that sense of self because their black identity has been affected. So that's why we have to make these changes because I want all my homies to be like, yeah, let's go take that week off, girl. Let's go shopping. Let's go do this. Let's go take care of ourselves because we often don't have the means to rest, to take a nap, right? To take a break where a lot of us are working two or three jobs, like trying to get the white folks to see our value. And it was such a, it was such a relief when I was like, I got to decide how much I make. I got to decide what I, what work I want to do instead of hoping that you get the really great project at your job. Like, oh, that sounds great. I get to just create that project and go do it now. And it's just, it's such freedom. And the last thing I'll say is this for anybody looking to, to shift is that that mindset piece, that's why I start with the anti-racist mindset in my work with the coaches. It's key. I spent years on the mindset piece of believing, of just getting in the space of believing that it's possible that I could have this. And I was telling that to my kids that the reason why I was broke before is because my mindset was broke. I had a scarcity mindset. And so that's the way I looked at things. That's when I spent money, I spent it thinking like, oh no, I'm never going to get any more. And now it's like, I just spent like a hundred dollars on some takeout the other day because it's like, money's always coming to me. Money loves me. Money loves my dirty drawers. That's one of my affirmations, right? <laughs> dirty drawers. Like I can show up funky and money still like, girl, I love you. Like I had to shift that mindset of what's possible. And as a teacher, I was excited. I was excited, you know, about 50 bucks an hour. I was like, oh my God, that's a 
$100,000 a year right now. I was thinking that that was big money. And that yeah. was like, if I hadn't made, if I haven't made a hundred thousand like the first four four months of, of, of the year, right? There's a problem, right? Like, like you know what I mean? Like, so it's, I had to shift, um, and so I would encourage everybody, especially people of color, because we've been so brainwashed, is to believe what's possible. And here's here, I'll leave us with this one thing: the first woman to be a millionaire in this country was born two years after enslavement and was a black woman, right? Madam C. J. Walker, who had. Mm-hmm more obstacles than any of us could have, right? Lack of education, you know, not really being protected under the law, like had all these things standing in her way. And and out of all the women on the planet, she beat, she beat on on the country, she beat all the white women who had access to all kinds of stuff, right? Born two years after enslavement and she was our first woman millionaire. So if she can do it, of course we can, right? Of course we can. So I just want people to just keep that in mind that, you know, she had everything going, working against her and still defy the odds because that's who we are as black people and as people who have survived white supremacy, we do the impossible. Look at you, look at me, we doing the impossible right now. Oh man, you just preaching right now, you preaching. Listen, (laughs) we got one one more question and then we'll wrap it up. And I probably know the answer to this question, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. (laughs) If you can invite three influential figures, dead or alive, who can join the ancestors at the dinner table and yourself, who would they be? Who's joining you and the ancestors? So you already know Harriet Tubman's going to be there. Come on. Um, I just think about how she had narcolepsy. I think about, again, she was guided by the ancestors too, right? Had no idea, you know, but she was, she was, she was in touch with a higher calling that drove her forward. So she's always been a source of strength for me. And I think about just, everything that she went through and how she didn't, she didn't know who she was yet. Right. She didn't, she didn't know she was Harriet Tubman and what she was here to do. And so I feel that I, I can, I can identify with that. Asada Shakur, um, mm. so, you know, number one outlaw or number one most wanted in this country. So she's a former black Panther, her, her autobiography. I just read it again a couple of years ago was a game changer for me. Um, absolutely amazing. She's still Coop. She's still in Kubo, right? She's still, yeah, as far as I know, she's still in Canada. Yeah. Um, I don't know who the third one would be, to be perfectly honest, now that you said that. Um, there's so many. I mean, I, I really love Lee Mois, but I've already met him. But he can still be part of the ancestors. You know what it would be? Um, I would include my father, who's already, he, I lost him last February. And so he is someone, and I'm not sad about it. He's, my dad is, he's loving the afterlife. He's so good. Um, mm. As he was declining, you know, he had, he, he wasn't able to do the things that brought him joy. So I'm glad that now he's able to do that. And when I tap into his energy, you know, he's, he's a, he's living his best life. And then just his strength, because he was always such a champion of education. There was, there was subjects I couldn't talk to my dad about, but we could always talk about education. And he was always so proud of me. And he told me, you know, you can do anything that you want um, in life. And I, and he, he said too, that he became, he became a public defender to fight racism. So his legacy has always been such a source of strength for me. Um, he recently got, um, he got a Silicon Valley uh, Black Legends Award for his work as a public defender in Santa Clara County. And I just, wow. He's just, he's remarkable. I remember like um, as a kid, anywhere we went, he would just run into one of his old clients and they would just be talking forever, ever. But just the way that he has looked out for the black and brown community legally um, in 
this area, I mean, I was a poli sci major. I mean, that's a, that's a lot of the same work, you know, it's like, I want to get the kids before they end up in the juvenile justice system. Right. But it's like the school to prison pipeline. It's, it's, you know, one hand washes the other. So I would include my dad. I'm looking forward to starting a scholarship in his name. Um, just to honor other black kids who, who need a helping hand. Cause I, cause I also want to say that like, I recognize, and that's why the ancestors come with me. I, I have a lot of privilege. Um, I, I grew up middle class and I grew up with kids from parents who have graduate degrees. So like, I really think it's important that we reach back and that, you know, we understand that, or I understand that I am because we are, I didn't get here by myself. Right. Mm-hmm. This is not, I'm not of the white mentality where it's like, Oh, Charlotte, you're amazing. Like, no, we're amazing. Right. We are amazing. So I really want to be able to offer those same opportunities to other black kids and especially um, foster youth. Wow. Especially foster youth. That's something that's really near and dear to my heart because um, we just, especially like black kids where we fall through the cracks. I mean, cause I, what my, my, Makaya, um, the, the, the baby girl with a knife, she was, as far as I understand, she was foster youth. She was in mm-hmm. foster home. Yeah, she was um, in the system and she was about to get jumped. And I just think about yep. like, she didn't have parents to protect her. There was nobody looking out for her. Like, I mean, no one looks out for foster kids period, but black foster kids. Like I can only imagine the trauma that she has endured and she's another, like, she's another like statistic, another sad story. Right. So I really would like to work with um, foster youth and just do just to, I don't know, put, even just put their experience in perspective, right. Again, so they don't internalize. Right. So you understand what, what happened to you and how the system abandoned you. So. Ooh. There you go. This, this episode is going to be for me personally. We've done 70 episodes of this podcast, and I'm gonna st- sit here and say that this is definitely this has to be top five. Right on. This hey. gotta be top five right here. Like real talk, just just everything from just your story, um, just your parents coming from humble beginnings. I mean, your father, Pine Bluff, Arkansas, to yep. What he eventually um, accomplished, leaving a legacy, man. Like I will be looking forward to listening to this episode time and time again. And also, whenever you start that scholarship um, in memory of your father, uh, let a brother know. I, I put in a donation. To, you know yeah. what I mean? That touches me very much. I appreciate that very much, Kwame. Yeah. Matter of fact. Matter of fact. Um. You got the Venmo anyway. I, I, I do that right after this show. I got you. I appreciate um, you. Yeah. So, yeah, Charlotte and the ancestors. Right, because they here. They yeah. here. <laughs> um, and yeah, he's in fellowship with the ancestors right now. Just mm-hmm. shining and smiling. And I know he's proud of you. I already know he's proud of you. I can feel him. I can feel him. Absolutely. I know you feel him. Mm-hmm. But thank you, Charlotte. And ancestors for being on the show. It's been a wonderful experience. But before you go, please let our audience know how they can connect with you on social media. And also, please share your new website as well so they can visit it and see your um, different services. Okay. So the new website is Charla Stevens Consulting, S H A R L A S T E V E N S Consulting um, at uh, dot, dot com. Um, so you can check out my services there and you'll be able to schedule a call. 
My uh, Facebook group is the Anti-Racist Educator Fighting White Supremacy in Schools. Great community, about a 300 educators in there right now. Um, my link, you definitely want to follow me on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn posts are fire and a ton of free content. Um, so it's Charlotte yeah. Stevens and the Ancestors m.ed i think um on linkedin and on instagram um i have healing racism in schools on instagram my podcast is healing racism in schools on apple and anchor um i think that's it and then like i said i'll send you those links for some resources if people want to get in touch and yeah that's the gist of it but i'm gonna, I'm gonna say this last thing is that a um, I really appreciate being on your show, Kwame, and I look forward to all that we can do together. And I'm just putting this out there in the universe for whoever might be watching. I'm trying to secure a TED Talk, and I'm trying to secure that this year. So I'm just manifesting that. I want to be on somebody's stage, my cute dress, and all the things. And also, um, I need to be on television, y'all. Like, I can speak. I look good. Like, let's put me on some TV so that we can get into these schools. Uh, because because people are watching more and more TV because we're, we're, a lot of people are still at home. So... I'm trying to let, let people know what I have to offer, right? So if you have an opportunity to showcase what I do, that'd be great. I appreciate it. So come, on, queen with them, come on, queen with those Ankh earrings. You know, I, I've, I've been keeping them Ankh earrings the whole time. The whole time. <laughs> I like to make sure I'm represented. Like, because I, I was going to put on some different earrings, but like, it's important, right? That like, people know what I stand for and the ancestors are here, right? So Listen. I appreciate you. Real recognize real. We'll Amen. Them. That's and it's funny because I just want to tell the audience. I saw Kwame's picture. I think it was on Clubhouse or LinkedIn or somewhere, and I just I could just feel your energy. And I reached out to you, and I was like, "Yo, you're doing dope things in education. I'm doing dope things in education. Let's connect." So that is real. Like sometimes you could just you can read somebody's energy off of the internet and still feel that connection. So trust your intuition, people. Like like get back in touch with nature, get back in touch with being able to be guided by the ancestors. Cause that's who we are, right? Like this whole, like being on our phones and being with technology all the time. That's not who we are being indoors all the time. That's not who we are. And you can't hear, you can't hear the, the, the angels talking to you when you're caught up in all of that. So you'll be able to just look at somebody's picture and feel good energy and be like, and you'll hear a message like I should connect with this person. Right. And then your whole world will open because you're in the flow. But when we're just constantly like disengaged, we, we can't we can't hear that. So I encourage everybody, you know, trust your intuition, you know, meditate, get centered, spend time in nature because you will be divinely guided and doors will open for you. And it will feel like magic because that's how my life feels. My life feels magical, like straight up. That's how it feels. Kwame, you look like your life is magical, too. <laughs> no, it is. Uh, I cannot complain. You know, family's healthy and I'm just blessed to be here. That's yep. all I can say. And you got a beautiful wife. I saw your beautiful wife. I, I don't think I've seen the, the same baby. Baby's two? He's three years old. He's three. When's his birthday? Is he coming up? Uh, November. November um, uh, 23rd. So it's his name is Thaddeus. So whenever that comes around, and this is just our way of decolonizing, it's Thad's giving. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That is the cutest. Does he get to eat all his favorite foods? He eats all his favorite foods every day. Oh, right. <laughs> and that, and then again, that's another way we can call the ancestors, right? Like every time you're eating something good, bring them in to smack on it with you, right? There you go. There you go. But Charlotte, it's been a blessing. Thank you so much for coming. And we we gonna wrap. We gonna wrap soon because I, I got some things I I want to pass by you. Kwame, you are my new brother. I already told Desmond. It's funny because I didn't even ask him. I was like, Desmond, you my brother. Kwame, you're going to be my other brother. 
I'm gonna get close to all your wives and your kids. We gonna be friends. So there you go. Yeah, real talk. I appreciate you and have a good rest of the day. All right, I appreciate you too. You take care. All right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Man, there you have it, people. Man, you were in store for another fantastic episode. And like I said, this is going to be a top five episode. Just the amount of wisdom and knowledge and just the depth of knowledge that was shared today by Charlotte. There's no monetary value to that. It's just going to make your life better. That's all I can say. But we're going to go ahead and wrap up. And as I always like to tell you all, we're going to do this again another time. So I wish you all a good morning, good night, and a good afternoon wherever you are in the world. So let's do this again next week. And peace out to everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.